Well, alrighty, gang. Welcome back to the Active Self Protection Podcast. I am yet again your host, Mike Williver, and I remain your favorite former Fed. With us today is Lee Smith. Lee is a former police officer. I won't mention all the departments. We'll talk about that in a second. He worked at a bunch of places in Southern California, just north of where I used to work. So it'd be amazing if he and I hadn't crossed paths in some way at some point during our career. And Lee will probably become your favorite former local by the time this is over. Lee, how are you, sir? I'm doing well. Very so, well, Mike. Thanks. So Lee uh, Lee is up in Idaho now. He is happily, oh, I assume happily retired. He's retired, so I think happily is a given. Uh, he is married with two adult kids, and he's retired from several, well, he's retired from one agency, but he worked at several in Southern California. So let's start there, Lee. Tell us about the places you worked in SoCal and about what time frame. Yeah, back in the late 70s, from 78 to 83, I worked in Newport Beach Police Department. Then I lateraled in 83, I lateraled in the Anaheim Police Department, where I worked uh, there for 27 years. Then I left there and went to the Orange County District Attorney's Office, where I worked about 15 years. So a couple of things I want to touch on before we go any further. One is 27 years with Anaheim PD. For most people, that part in the middle is your career. That's the whole thing. You know, that's that's more than enough time to do all the jobs you want to do and get retired and enjoy the rest of your life. But you decided to go on and work for the DA's office. Now, here's we've never had a, a DA investigator on this show, but I've worked with some throughout the years. And it's one of those niche jobs that I think the public doesn't know very much about. So can you could just kind of give us an overview of what a, a DA investigator does? Yeah, Yes. Um, a, a good example to start with is, because uh, I've had quite a few people ask me that, is the series on TV called Law & Order, where you see the lawyers and they're assigned a police detective, so to speak. And what it is, you have prosecuting attorneys, well, pr- prosecuting attorneys who file all the criminal cases in Orange County. They're assigned experienced police investigators. And um, some attorneys are assigned to, and the uh, Orange County District Attorney's Office has a huge office, about 200 plus deputy district attorneys, and who file all the different crime crimes, and I'm talking everything from property crimes, fraud, all the way up to homicides. So Those Orange particular, County, I'm oh, sorry. Ahead, sorry. No, no I was going to say, so they're assigned, um, these investigators, and in order to get hired, you have to be in a seasoned police officer. Usually, they roughly around 10 plus years experience, preferably with the extensive background in investigations. And that's how it starts. But they are sworn police officers um, as uh, DA investigators. So, for the people out there, I know we have a lot of cops who listen, active duty cops. Um, technical question. So, if, if I'm, let's say I'm, 11 years on with uh, Newport Beach PD and I decide I want to be a district attorney's investigator, can I lateral over to that and then sort of finish my state retirement time doing those two jobs? Or do I have to retire from somewhere and then join? No, most of the time you have to retire uh, in California. Now you have Mm -hmm. to retire from your police job before you can go because the Orange County district attorneys is under the county retirement program, which is separate from the state retirement program. And so, yeah, you're most of the people that come over, men and women are usually towards the end of their law enforcement career. And then they're going into, and if they get hired, it's a full hiring process, psychological, medical interviews and everything. It's not easy to get hired. 
then you're going to be under the county's retirement system, completely different retirement system. Interesting. Okay. So I think a lot of people think that, well, I don't know if a lot of people think this. I think this. When when a police officer, sheriff's deputy, uh, highway patrol retires, frequently they'll get a job that is kind of a snooze fest. You know, a lot of the guys I know went to work at the federal building wearing a blue jacket. It's a, it's a great job if you can get it. You know, making decent money. And it's kind of a, it, you know, it's kind of an easy, you know, beer money retirement kind of a gig. DAI is not that at all. So kind of give the folks an idea of what uh, what you might do on a typical day as a, as a district attorney's investigator. As an investigator, it, a lot depends on what kind of unit you're assigned. If you're assigned to a fraud unit, uh, real estate fraud, medical fraud, workers' comp fraud, you're going to be doing a lot more at the desk trying to follow up investigations. If you're working in a gang unit, you're working a homicide, major assault, sexual assault, you're going to be out in the field doing a lot more contacts, follow-up work on uh, cases that were uh, provided to you from the sheriff's department or city police department. And you're going to be out doing more uh, proactive investigative work. What we do not do in the DA's office is we're not first responders. Right. Uh, we, we, uh, so we don't drive around in a black and white police car making car stops and things like that. Uh, we do a lot of surveillances. We do and assist. Uh, we have task forces, which are much more proactive, where they're out actually doing surveillances. Uh, sometimes those surveillances can even take them out of state, depending how involved they are. Um, so we're doing a, a more investigative work. Um, and, and then we're also assisting the district attorneys in the court with their courtroom trials. We do a lot of trial prep with the deputy DAs, and and then we look at all the police department investigations that come in, and then we review anything that we're, we might need to do some additional follow-up work. Very good. So, for example, um, I know we talked about this before we hit the record button, but like witness protection is a part of some DA's office investigators' jobs. You never did that particular job. Um, is that something as well that you might have done in that job previously? So if you have a witness to a murder, let's say, and they're at risk of being killed or, you know, or they're whatever, they're being threatened. That's something that you might have handled, right? Yeah, we do. We actually have a, a witness protection detail and, and they're assigned to like the DA, the district attorney himself and any of the DAs that are uh, in court trying, say, a serious gang case where there's some concerns with retaliation retaliatory violence towards a deputy district attorney or any of the major homicides like that. Um, we assist sometimes Secret Service, sometimes ad additional agencies where they need some uh, VIP dignitary protection. So we have a special unit in within the DA's office that will do that. That's very interesting. Well, it's interesting to us law enforcement types. I don't know the regular people might be bored to tears. I have no idea, but I think I think that's fascinating personally to hear about that kind of stuff that you did. Um, and so it's possible that you and I may have been in the same building at the same time at some point. So when when did you work gangs exactly? I'm just curious. What like what year were you on a gang? Uh, I worked gangs from about um, eighty nine till about ninety six. Never mind. We weren't, <laughs> we weren't on a task force. We were never in the same building, probably. So people don't know. Uh, Orange County is a very prosperous, very wealthy, very densely packed county. I think a lot of people, when they're in Orange County, think they're in L.A., but they're not. It's sort of south, almost, well, southeast of L.A., I guess, um, between um, San Diego and Los Angeles County. 
And us, those of us in San Diego are so grateful that Orange County exists to keep L.A. up in L.A. We keep San Diego down in San Diego. Um, and just some of the finest law enforcement agencies on in the country, on the planet, uh, are in Orange County. The Sheriff's Department is outstanding. I, I did collaterals with um, Anaheim with some frequency. Another fun fact about Anaheim is I don't think people realize if you leave, and this is not going to be sponsored by the Anaheim Tourism Board, by the way, if you leave Disneyland and go a few blocks in the wrong direction, you are in danger. Am I? Is that still the case as far as you know, Lee? Yeah, we had uh, many years ago, it, we, well, we had one of our most violent city gangs that lived just a few blocks from Disneyland. And uh, I don't know if uh, that gang's still in existence anymore, but uh, we spent a lot of time in those neighborhoods and very few Disneyland tourists were aware of it and, and for the right reasons, because most of the people in that neighborhood uh, didn't go over to Disneyland. However, the decent people that lived in that low income neighborhood were actually employees at Disneyland, not, not the gang members and not the prostitutes and the dope dealers, but the everyday average citizens that lived there. A lot of them worked at Disneyland. And I would imagine you get a lot of out-of-town people, a lot of businessmen there for conventions and such that find themselves, um, let us say, looking to sample the local goods in that area. Is that, do you remember yeah. that? Yeah, we had a problem with that years ago. Um, we have the main harbor boulevard there. Uh, we did have some problems with that kind of activity. Matter of fact, the and then we started having a lot of property crimes in the hotels around Disneyland, including some street robberies on the outer perimeter of Disneyland. So what we did, we, the police department, we created a what we call a South District unit. And so we assigned detectives and patrol personnel that were actually working as stationed out of Disneyland. And um, so they did a lot of they handled a lot of the crime, the serious crime that occurred in Disneyland through that unit working very, with the Disneyland has a very good security program, but they I've don't heard. handle the serious crime. Yeah. There's no, there's, there's nobody in a Mickey outfit coming to investigate a homicide right at the front gate of Disneyland. Exactly. Well, and you get a lot of these theft rings, identity theft, um, credit card theft, things like that uh, became a problem. So we had detectives down there working a lot of that. Very interesting. One of these days, I'm going to have to interview myself for this show because I I, I almost got carjacked in La Mirada. This is back in 97, maybe. Um, my wife and I went, I'll tell the quick story. My wife and I went up for to bring our kids to Disneyland, and I had a F-250 with these goofy little drop seats, you know, extended cab drop seats in the back that weren't very comfortable for the kids. So I rented a Toyota Camry, a really nice one, leather interior, like top of the line. And one of our kids got sick and I didn't know anything about, I was brand new to SoCal. So I didn't know if La Mirada was a good area or not, but we found a cheap hotel there and I had to go out. One of our kids got sick. I had to go out at like midnight to get some Robitussin. And when I came out of the, I think it was a thrifties drugstore up there. Um, I had company. So anyway, I'll, I'll leave that cliffhanger there. I'll come back to that story some other time. <laughs> People were interested in my Toyota Camry uh, and they didn't get it for the record. Um, but I'll tell that story another time. So your your incident, the one we're going to discuss, because there's more than one. You had more than one officer involved shooting in your career. But the one we're going to discuss primarily happened to you off duty. So kind of give us an idea. What time frame? What were you assigned to at the time? And kind of walk us through where you were and what happened. Okay. I... 
on here. Okay. Take your time. Yeah, it was uh, it was it was in December 1991. I was off duty, living in a one bedroom, one bath, small condominium co- condo in a complex uh, about a half mile north of Cal State Fullerton in the city of Fullerton, and I was working um, gangs. I lived alone, and um, just to show you when I when I preface this story, I I tell people, I want you to think real hard about what you would do under these circumstances. So I'm up early. I got, I was getting home late at night, two, three, four o'clock in the morning, depending on what we had going on that night, but we were working a modified swing shift. So um, for me, I always wore a handgun going to and from work. I lived about uh, roughly 12 miles from the, the main station in downtown Anaheim. And then we'd work, uh, like I said, so I'd get home late at night. The complex had about 120 units in it, and it, they were all small condominiums, and it was a secured complex. It had a security gate all the way around it, and you only got in on uh, through the electrical gate through the front. Okay. So I was, uh, I was going to school while I was working full-time. So when you get home and you're in your what I call comfort zone, and um, you're not thinking, you're not in that high awareness state of mind. And um, so you're, I was home. It was early morning. I was up early working on a school paper. Uh, my mind's not on work. Um, and then uh, I don't know how far you want me to start want to oh, get yeah. into the it's story. It's your story. Tell how you like. So I'm up in my comfort zone. I'm focusing on this paper. I mean, that's what my mindset was. So I'm going to finish this uh, part of the paper, and then I'm going to go. I had my gear laid out, ready to go to work. I'm working again a modified swing shift. So I'm going to finish up this work and I'll take a shower. Then I'm going to go to the gym, work out for a while, and then go go to work. So um, I'm in the shower, and it's daytime. It's about 11 o'clock in the morning. And as I'm in the shower, I hear somebody banging on my front door, a fist, boom, 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 boom. Knocking like he's in I thought that was odd because my front door was enclosed by a block wall with a wooden gate that's usually locked. Hmm. And I couldn't remember. There was only one way in, one way out. It was only a front door. And I thought I couldn't remember if I had locked the gate or not. So I, I listened. The water's still running. I hear it again. Boom, 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 boom. I turned the water off and I thought, who would be at my front door now? So I step out of the shower, I peek around the corner and down the the small hallway, short hallway through my bedroom, directly at the window, bedroom window, which was near the front door, through the drapes, I can see the silhouette of someone standing right outside the window who appeared to be a male. And so I'm watching and because, again, I'm in my comfort zone and all of a sudden I see his arms come up towards the latch on the window and I can hear metal on glass and i'm thinking is that guy prying at my window oh boy so immediately i ducked down and i'm thinking this guy trying to break in again it's still registering even though i i dealt but doing i was doing this full time and then all of a sudden i hear glass break i hear the glass well i hear it crack and then i i realize okay i got to get to the phone i got to call the police department so at, I'm low crawling, and I got to remember I'm in my birthday suit. So when the, the fear, the fear factor is starting to intensify. 
Two two places um, you want your your critical incident to start is getting out of the shower or on the toilet. I don't want I don't want to have to deal with an intruder or an earthquake. You know what I mean? Either one of those things is um, living in SoCal. You're always in the back of your head is you hear you feel a little bump. You're like, is that an earthquake? On the toilet is not where you want to be. And getting out of the shower. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Go ahead, Lee. No, so I'm I'm low crawling along the floor, uh, the carpet. And I'm trying to get into my bedroom. I had a hardline phone. And if, oh, if I use any police terms, let me know. I'll explain them. Oh, yeah. There's a hardline phone near the on a little dresser near the bed. I'm going to get on the hardline phone and call Fullerton Police Department. In the meantime, now the person outside the window is broken. It actually broken several. Uh, he made let several cracks in the window, and I can see him removing through the shadow. I can see him removing large slivers of glass. And he's trying to be real quiet. So now I realize, okay, this guy's breaking in. So again, the fear factor is elevating. And now I'm realizing I'm not going to have time to call. I'm not going to be able to get to the phone. So I get in my bedroom and right away I'm thinking, okay, I got to protect myself. Well, in my little walk-in closet, I had a couple of 12-gauge hunting shotguns and a bunch of 12-gauge ammo. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to grab one of the shotguns and I'm just going to crawl back in the walk-in closet, and maybe he won't see me because it was dark in there. So as I'm going towards the closet, I'm all fours now. I'm still crawling along the floor. It dawned on me that I had my Colt 45 handgun in my shoulder holster in my top dresser drawer. So I reached up and grabbed that, and I go back in the walk-in closet, and I, I hunker down real low. And by now, the suspect has got his hand on the latch of the window, and I had had two security pins in a aluminum frame and he starts tugging on the slider. Mm-hmm. He's tugging on it. And I can, I knew any moment he was going to defeat the security pins and he's going to open the window. And he does, he opens it, he pulls it back. And now I'm squatted down inside the walk-in closet. I'm, I've got a direct view of the window and it was a large window. I see him insert his arm. He pulls the drape back and I see his leg step in. It's ground level, so it's it's he steps in, and then I, he stumbles over my laundry basket, and then all of a sudden he's completely in the bedroom, and I can see him. He hasn't seen me yet. Let and me stop you right there. So, as you're as you're as all this is going on, are you formulating a plan in your head, or what's going through your mind? I'm going to hide and hopefully he won't see me, or I don't want him to know I'm here until it's too late for him. Or what were you thinking? Well, the fear factor, and and this is my experience, um, fear, and I used to tell police recruits this, fear is normal. And in my experience is controlled fear is courage. You're going to be scared, but you still got to react. You still got to take care of the business. Um, So I decided at that point, if he's going to come into my condo, I'm going to let him come inside because I knew the laws in California. For me, just to, to, to do anything while he's outside the window, I've got nothing but maybe trespass at the most. Right. So I'm going to confront him inside. And if, you know, if he's going to do a burglary, uh, that's what I assumed he was going to do. He's going to do a daytime residential burglary, steal some property and leave. I'm going to confront him. Mm-hmm. And then so I'm, that's going through my mind. It didn't, it just it goes to show you when you have the level of intense fear, it didn't, I didn't even think about being butt naked. But I'll follow that up here in a moment with some other things. But what happens is I make a, a mind, 
I developed the mindset, okay, I'm going to confront this guy. He wants to come in the bedroom, I'm going to confront him. So he's completely in now, and he's standing there, and I can see he's about 5'10", 5'11". He's got a jean jacket on and because uh, it's winter, so he's got uh, one or two layers underneath that. He comes in. I come out of the closet now up against the wall, and I get in a two-handed shooting stance position right at him, and I'm approximately seven feet from him. And he's standing there, and if, if there's ever been a moment when uh, time has just frozen, it was like suspended animation. He's staring at me. I'm staring at him. And I, I'd seen this stare every night. He's, he's got that prison, hardcore stare about him. So we lock eyes. And uh, out of my peripheral vision, I can see he's got an object in his hand. I, I couldn't testify to what it was, but I could tell he's got an object in his hand. So I yell. I yell at him, police department. Please get out on the ground now. I say a couple things like that really loud. And and um, on a side note, later I learned from the detectives that several of my neighbors heard me yelling, police, police, which Good. can really work to your advantage Absolutely. in a self-defense case. Well, the guy stands there. He's just staring at me. I'm staring at him. And all of a sudden he starts walking towards me. Oh. So I fire right away. Two rapid shots, center mass, upper chest. And he stands there. And this is something else I used to emphasize in my training. It's not like TV. You don't shoot people and they fall back 10 feet. Watch what this guy's able to do with two lethal gunshot wounds. And, and I've seen it in other incidences on the job. People have taken lethal hits and they can still function. So this guy, he, uh, he says something to me sweet like, F you, and he yells it, and he immediately blades his body sideways because I'm going to fire again, but he blades his body sideways to crawl back out the window or actually step outside the window, and I don't want to shoot a third round and miss because across the parking lot over the car porch was the freeway, and I was okay. concerned that if I missed, a straight round might go to the freeway. So... so I mean, at this point, aren't you thinking if he's trying to leave, I don't know if I'm naked and I've just, oh, it, you've got a lot to think about, right? Like, do I want to, do I want him to stop? Do I want to let him go bleed out in the parking lot? Or, you know what I mean? There's had to be a lot going good, through your mind. Well, good question. Because my, uh, my bird dog instinct was I'm going after him. Right. So he's out the window. I hear him push the gate open and I'm, I, I run to the window. I'm going to climb out it. And then I see all this broken jagged glass and i'm thinking i'm gonna cut myself to ribbons if i go out this window it finally dawned on me man put some clothes on <laughs> so i can hear the footsteps i hear him running and then i hear a car engine start and an engine start to rev up and now i'm thinking there's two there's two there's a wheel man and then there's the primary mm -hmm. so i immediately realize okay my condo is going to be a crime scene so i lay the gun down i put some clothes on I immediately, well, first of all, I laid the gun down and I get on the landline with the Fullerton Police Department and uh, they did a real good job. I could hear their dispatchers putting out the call. I'm an off-duty Anaheim police officer. I just had a person break into my condo. Um, he's been shot in the upper body. He ran out. I heard a car start. He could have got in it. I did not see that, but I Can heard I a car you? drive away. I'm sorry what? to interrupt you again. I need to know. As you're saying these words on the phone, you're you're a seasoned police officer. You know this is being recorded. Is it at all in your mind 
that the words I'm saying right now could very well be played back for a criminal or a civil jury in a couple of years. Is that something you're thinking about in that moment? Because I would have been. It, 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 I already knew that. I knew everything I said to a dispatcher is being recorded. Sure. Um, that's why I didn't come in. That That's why I was careful how I was saying things like, I, even though I heard the car and the circumstances would indicate that he more than likely got in the car, I didn't see that. And I couldn't, she asked me, is he armed? I, I didn't, I didn't see a weapon. I saw an object in his hand, but I couldn't tell what it was. I'll tell you what it was here uh, in, in a few minutes. Okay. So he, he did. He, uh, so in the meantime, I hear dispatch putting it out and I can hear right away two motor officers just coincidentally were in the area, Fullerton motor officers. And they immediately said, I hear him take the call. And they said they're almost, I don't want, I got to be careful not to use radio talk, that, that they were almost on scene. And, uh, and I told them there's a big security gate. Well, they were aware of that. So what happened is, I don't see this, but uh, what happened is a suspect did get into a car. He got into a car by himself. He drove approximately 200 feet, still in the complex. He collapsed behind the steering wheel veered off into the parking lot, collided with a fire hydrant and broke it off at the base. So now That's you've got this ending. 20 feet of, of a fountain of water shooting up. Now you got all kinds of people coming out of their condos. And the, as soon as the motor officers come in, they see this collision, not a hundred percent sure if it's related or not, but as they get up on the car, they see this guy bleeding. They see the floorboard of the car, blood in it. Uh, so immediately they're calling for assistance and help. In the meantime, I'm back in the condo getting dressed, knowing that uh, my whole condo is a crime scene now. And I knew there were going to be patrol officers coming because they don't know who I am. Right. Just that there was an off-duty Anaheim officer involved, but they don't know who I am. In the meantime, now I open up the front door. The motor officers are calling the paramedics. Suspect still alive, but he's got two gunshot wounds to the upper torso. So as I'm standing there in the doorway of my condo, I see about four uniform officers using, you know, cover and concealment, tactically moving up to the condo. And I immediately had my badge in my hand and I've got my hands up and they start yelling at me, you know, get your hands up, come out now. Mm -hmm. And um, I do, I comply to everything they say. And then I tell them, you know, I'm the off-duty Anaheim officer. And then they, I see they let their guard down a little bit and said, Was it, has your condo been cleared yet? And uh, I said, it is, but feel free to clear it. So they moved me out of the way, and three of them went in there and cleared the condo. Um, I had taken the gun and laid it on the bed because um, I knew, like I mentioned earlier, it was a crime scene. Right. So in the meantime, medics are treating the, uh, the suspect. And uh, I don't know if I'm allowed to use his name. but um, It's up to you. Uh, Mr. Galindo. Okay. Galindo's his last name. Um so uh, they're treating him, and they're uh, and again, I'm, I'm not teaching a police recruit class because I go into a lot more detail about crime scene preservation and sure. things like that. But they're the paramedics are there. They're treat, they're cutting his clothes off, treating him. They get him hauled off to a trauma center over in the city of Orange, uh, University of California, Irvine, huge hospital, a great trauma center. I've been there with some uh, one or more officers that have been shot on duty. Um, so there he immediately goes into surgery. In the meantime, now Fullerton detectives are coming out. 
and Anaheim detectives are coming out since I'm an off-duty Anaheim officer. And, um, and the Orange County District Attorney's Office in the city of, in the county of Orange County, all officer of all shootings are investigated by the Orange County District Attorney's Office. And so their shooting team comes out. And so before I know it, now I've got, uh, you know, I got a dozen investigators at my condo, but, um, and then obviously they're going to interview me, but once I walk them through the crime scene, they're going to take me to the Fullerton police department, which is the jurisdiction that the shooting occurred. And they're going to do a full blown homicide slash officer involved shooting investigation. So, they start, uh, the, you know, they start canvassing all the neighbors, the uh, crime scene again, his crash car. He's at the hospital. They're sending investigators to the hospital. And then eventually I'm being transported to the Fullerton Police Department to be interviewed. Um, and then uh, the suspect, it was a couple hours later, he dies in surgery. Mm-hmm. Uh, later, the cause of death was the uh, gunshot wounds. And uh, he was internally he was bleeding out i don't want to get too gory here um but what uh think points i make when i teach this class to uh, particularly seasoned new cops or seasoned cops things you've got to really pay attention to but for homeowners like i i taught this to a several uh we used to have a civilian police academy where we let the citizens come in and go through part of a uh police academy so they could experience what police officers would go through. Very useful, by the way, very useful tool for the PD. Cause I, I've not to interrupt again, but here I go. I, I've seen like some of the people who are very anti-police sort of uh, community activists. If you've seen this and uh, there's one in Phoenix who they invited him. Hey, you, you know, we hear your criticism, come in and kind of go through this. And man, he shot the first guy he could possibly shoot in that training scenario. The guy, all the guy did was kind of walk towards him funny and you know so those those citizen academies are really really great um depending no, on we, how, obviously yeah we and they might still be doing them there in anaheim uh we did that a lot but but i would soft i would tell them this story although i wouldn't get in such great detail but mm-hmm. uh i remember at the conclusion of that you know i'd ask the citizens you know how would you have handled this and so on and so forth so at the end we had a question and answer session and i remember some of the citizens asking me well, why didn't you just yell at him? Why didn't you just answer the door? Why didn't you just uh, grab two pots out of the kitchen and bang them together? Uh, why didn't you uh, turn up the radio real loud or the TV? And I said, okay, well, th- those are good questions. But in, in my mind, with my experience and training, it never entered my mind once to scare him away. It just never entered my mind. Uh, maybe if I'd had a dog and a dog started barking, it would have scared him away. Uh, it's not uncommon for these daytime residential burglars, male or female, or a team of them. If you answer the door, they'll just give you some excuse while they're there. They're looking for, um, you know, Johnny. And I, I was told Johnny lived here and, and they, you know, some excuse and they leave. It's just a ruse. Mm-hmm. But in this particular case, it never entered my mind. But what we found out when the, when he was still in the car and the two motor officers pulled up, he had about a five to seven inch fi- fixed blade fishing fillet knife tucked under one of his uh, legs. And that's what we believe he used to pry the window. And that's more than likely what he had in his hand. 
So you cut out for a second there um, on my end. So you, you said he had what in his hand? It was a five to seven inch fixed blade fishing fillet knife. Oh boy. Yeah, that'll do a lot of damage. And so I, I throw this out to the group of officers and even citizens. Try Think about going hand to hand with a suspect. One, you're wet, you're naked and you're wet. And he's got a knife, fixed blade knife. Well, even though I had extensive uh, training in martial arts and um, firearms training, uh, I didn't, again, at the time, didn't know it was a knife. But had I decided to engage him hand-to-hand, it wouldn't have taken much for him to do some serious cutting or slicing, and I would have been in a world of trouble. Um, So that's what we believe he used, um, and that's what he had on him. So... Uh, these are questions you got to ask yourself as a citizen and as whether you're a cop or not, because I was off duty and technically I'm just a citizen. I just happen to be much more highly trained than the average person. Um, could I have gone hand to hand with him? Sure, I could have, but at a great risk. Um, but again, I talk about mindset, the importance of being able to function when there is intense fear. And uh, again, I go back to what I said earlier uh, and I tried to emphasize this with police recruits because they're raw and they don't have except the former military men and women, but most of them don't have any real experience in being scared out of their shoes. And you've got to be able, that's normal. Fear is normal. Controlled fear is courage. You still got to do, do the job. So uh, those are things I talk a lot about. And then I, I get into talking about some leadership and I talk about the importance of training uh, whether you're a citizen or a uh, former military uh, or firefighter, but if you're going to have a firearm as protection, you got to train with it. And on or off duty, plain clothes or uniform, and it's a tool. And I used to work with some deputy district attorneys in the Orange County DA's office. They'd come to me and say, hey, Lee, I, I've got young kids. You know, I, I don't want any guns in the house. I said, okay, that's fine. Well, do you play golf? Yeah. Uh, do you play baseball or softball? Yeah. Well, whack them with a golf club if you have to. That's all you have. Or use a use an aluminum baseball bat or a wooden baseball bat if that's all you have. But remember, whatever kind of weapon you confront them with, they can take it away from you, including a gun, mm-hmm. um, and use it on you. So... Uh, those are things to consider that I think many people don't think about. Now, up here, what a lot of people have is bear spray, you know, bear spray, because particularly you go outside. But another valuable, I think, in-house tool would be a fire extinguisher. If you can get to it in time and uh, be able to, you know, un- unload it on a suspect. But um, then you just think about uh you never know when it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. You never know. And then when it does happen, what, what's your game plan? And I tell my, my stepson and daughter, even when we're out and about, and you know now with what's going on with all these active shooters, don't ever identify me as a cop, yep. whatever you do. And if I bark at it and give you some orders, just do them. Don't question me. There are so many knuckleheads out there now with with – with their own little agenda to hurt people. But anyway, back to the condo. So um, look at your own place where you live 
have a plan of action, what you're going to do, where is the easiest way to get in and out of your property, front doors, windows, garage, whatever it may be. And uh, dogs make good deterrence. Most suspects I've interviewed hate dogs. And it's usually if they, particularly when, um, particularly the canine dogs, Uh, but just the average dog. Most uh, suspects don't want the dogs and they don't like light. This this particular suspect happened to uh, break in during a daytime. But uh, here's some questions I throw out to the the civilian group is what if he broke in and it would have been just an elderly couple, you know, or. It was, we were only about a half mile north of the Cal State Fullerton University, big college, a lot of, lot of pretty women. It would have, um, it would have been a, just a young college girl there by herself. Now, the guy would have broken with the intent to do property crime, but all of a sudden now it's turned into a sexual assault or, yeah, or maybe even. All of a sudden exactly. there's something else we can do while we're in here. Or a couple of young kids left home because mom had to run up to the grocery store. Yeah. Right. So you've always got to have a game plan. And uh, this guy, it turns out, and I forgot to conclude it up. Um, let me give you just a brief on this guy's background. Anyway, he dies in a hospital and then the, obviously they're going to do the autopsy. And on the autopsy, he, um, he was under the influence of, he was under the influence of heroin and, um, Let's see. Heroin and cocaine. He was under the influence of both of them. And he had an, he was already on parole for armed robbery and burglary. So he had just gotten out of prison. Mm-hmm. So he was just going back to his normal crime. And he's, he had an extensive background in robbery and burglary and narcotics. Um, and then uh, that's another thing to, to consider. But what, what I emphasize too is when those suspects are under the influence and it doesn't matter if it's a male or female, if they're under the influence of narcotics, alcohol, or a combination thereof, look what this guy's able to do, even though he's taken two lethal hits to the torso and it, and the rounds went clean through him. And, um, the, uh, I used a 45 was a cool 45, 1911. And, uh, there were 185 grain silver tip Winchester rounds. So now small, later we went to we went to two uh, 230 grain rounds, but I mean solid gun all the way around. And I'd used it not only that one I'd used another 45 on a, a one or two other shootings. But the rounds went clean through his body. They went through the upper body, went through the window, and slammed into a block wall outside on the front porch area. But he was able to. Cl- step out of the window. He was able to run down up probably about a hundred feet, get in a car, start it up, drive roughly about 200 feet. And then he collapsed. But had he had a gun, I, you know, he could have used it. He obviously, if he'd had some other kind of weapon, I guess he could have charged me with the knife. Um, but another question or set of circumstances I throw out to people if, if he would have complied, what, when I said, police, get down on the ground, mm-hmm. excuse me, if he had just put his hands up and got down and proned out on the ground, uh, you know, what would you have done? Well, I had handcuffs nearby. 
with near my shoulder holster. I don't, I might have, again, depending on the circumstances, I might have just kept him proned out, got, got on a phone and just kept him covered and called police department and I waited. Would, I, would, I would have done, yeah. Just keep him there. And then uh, when the police got there, they can come in and handcuff him. But um, so there's a lot to learn from this. And it was so such a unique set of circumstances in that no matter of all the shooting schools I've been to, including the FBI, the FBI used to invite me to their shoot. They have a um, FBI shooting range there in Irvine, California, or in Orange County. And um, they used to invite me down to debrief this at their firearms, um, post-certified firearms course, because it was such a unique set of circumstances. And then there were also some other shootings I would debrief with them um, because of my background. And because uh, this was, these were all seasoned officers. Most of them were SWAT, some were military. Um, but, and then I'd get into a little more about firearms training and leadership and things like that. But um, it's a unique set of circumstances and uh, a lot of things to, to discuss. Absolutely. And let me see, I made some notes. Uh, yeah, which I, which I wouldn't mind. But think, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was going to say, I, I think, um, yeah, I usually try to cover some training points. You've covered the vast majority of them already because you are, you know, you are you and you're an instructor and you've given a class on this. But I think that maybe the most important point for the average person, whether it's an off-duty cop or, you know, just someone who happens to have a gun in their house and they're prepared for trying to prepare for a possible break-in is that John will say on the main channel a lot when we do these badge cams, you know, the perp gets a definitive vote frequently in what kind of force gets used the force used on a, on a bad guy by the police is it should be ideally based on the threat that bad guy is presenting to the police officers. The bad guy's running at you with fists, you know, you can't draw your gun and shoot him. Right. Um, right. There's a proportionality element of that, but we, we don't get to choose whether you're on duty police officer or just somebody in their home. You don't get to choose the time, the day, the hour or the manner of your critical incident. It just happens. However, it happens. Yours did not happen under any ideal circumstances. It's probably not something you workshopped in your head. OK, if I'm in the shower and my hair is soapy and I hear bang at the door and somebody's breaking the window, I'm going to do this. You know, we don't work through this stuff. But you had a general plan. Um, of what you might do and you'd at least thought about if there's a break in i might do you know a b or c but i think the important thing here the most important thing here takeaway to me is you shot him twice in a critical area that proved to be fatal right eventually yes had, had he decided as you touched on briefly had he decided no well i'm already shot i'm going to take this guy with me and charge you with the knife you'd have had a problem i think right i mean yeah well I would have done my best to try to sidestep left or right, moved laterally on him. But if we were in tight quarters in a small bedroom, um, so my I, my boundaries were limited. And I probably, I might have, because this is what the SWAT guys would ask, why didn't you do a headshot? Why didn't you do a headshot? Well, it's real easy in training when you're shooting at cardboard and targets and it's not moving. And it's been my experience Rarely, rarely will a suspect just stand there and let you shoot them. They're moving. The body's moving sideways, laterally, up, down. And headshots are hard to make. But more than likely, that probably would have been my an option I would have seriously considered. Had I been able to try to back up or move left or right, the next, the third shot probably, um, I would have gone for a more 
critical area of the neck or the head to try to just stop him, you know, immediately put him down. Um, another issue to, that I rarely ever hear talked about, and in some of the um, classes I've taught, uh, not so much with the new recruits, but more with the seasoned officers, is uh, is you got to remember, if you're going to use a firearm in an incident, protect yourself and make sure you're trained. But you've got to realize taking somebody's life is not easy. And you, in the heat of the battle, you got to do what you got to do. And then you got to remember, you got to be able to live with yourself with whatever decision you made. Um, and, you know, for me, I'm, this was clean. All these shootings I talked about, I've been in, I haven't talked about them, but I've been cleared by the FBI, DOJ, and they've all been adjudicated. But I was doing my job. I was right. doing my job. And, um, and and I've worked with other guys that have been through um, several shootings themselves. But um, the point is that some people can't accept that. And if that's you can't accept it, then that's something you got to live with and decide what or what else can you do to protect yourself or your family and 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 I don't mean this as in a mean way but this is something you got to talk to yourselves about or talk to trainers or talk to uh, your family in general um what are you going to do and uh, can you live with the the after action report so to speak we put you on the spot, Lee. Have you ever listened to an episode of this podcast before? It's okay if you haven't. Most most guests have never heard of it. I had not heard of it until Carrie told me. Okay, and, and I want to uh, talk about Carrie too in a minute and how you met Carrie. But first, I definitely want to say this. Um, you, the things you just said are things that I say not every week, but with great frequency. If you are going to, especially as a, as a non-LEO, as a, as, a, as a citizen who decides to arm themselves, and I encourage you to do that, I encourage you to get training, as much training as you can fit in and afford to do. Yeah. Uh, most of all, that conversation that we need to have with ourselves, that I think a lot of people don't have with themselves, is I've got this gun. Okay, I've trained with it. I know how to use it. I know how to deploy it quickly in a situation. But am I ready to actually pull the trigger? Because you touched on two things. One, that conversation with yourself that you have to have ahead of time. <coughs> Excuse me. Because the moment of truth is not the time to have that conversation. There's no time for that is can I take a human life or at least gravely injure someone to protect myself and my family? If the answer is no or maybe, you need to think about it some more and consider your options. 